Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the compounded interest. Now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook, our sports edition, our Thursday show. A wonderful, uh, kind of a little break from the norm as we bring in a fantastic guest again this week, Scott. You know, we're joined with Brandon Scott from Sports Radio 610. We appreciate you coming in and joining us here this week. Hey, man, always glad to have an opportunity to talk Rockets and Houston sports, man. So I just appreciate you guys for inviting me and for having me. Yeah. Uh, Brandon is absolutely the hardest working guy over at 610. Uh, if you look at their website, you know, most of the stuff there is his. So, you know, he's covering all the teams. And I uh, heard you uh, subbing in uh, with Sean this morning. So, yeah, you, you pull a lot of duties over there. Yeah, man, I'm enjoying that. I got to do the so last week I was notified that they need me to fill in for set pain for uh, the first three days of the week. So I've been in with Sean since Monday. So going to do that again tomorrow morning on when or Wednesday morning, I should say. Uh, so Monday through Wednesday, it's uh it's my shared real estate. So I try to take take all the advantages of the of an opportunity like that, especially to be on with somebody like Sean, you know, who's kind of, you know, an institution of himself at this point now for as long as he's been doing radio. So to kind of be in there and to be able to carry my weight is a, is a big deal to me. So I, I've enjoyed doing that. I actually got my start in, in uh, broadcasting. My first real internship was, was working on Sean Pendergast's show at uh, 1560 a.m. Uh, back when he was over there before he made the move to 610. Uh, he used to work with uh, Granado. It was Granado and Pendergast on 1560 was my first real internship. Yeah, well, I remember those days. We're probably right around the same age then because I had a buddy from college. I went to Sam Houston State and a buddy of mine, Mike Silva, worked uh, did, did something similar um, working with um with, with 1560, which, I mean, since you were there, I don't have to tell you, that was a time. That was a special time in Houston sports radio history. So, uh, yeah. so, so I, I know it's, it's probably cool for you to have been able to have been a part of that. Yeah, it was – and there was some real talent on 1560 that 
and it went away. But if you look about, look around, you know who's who's still out there now. You know, you got Clanton yeah. uh, still around on seven ninety. You have uh, Pendergast made his way over to six ten. We had Sean Harris, uh, who uh, you know who's now the sideline guy for the Texans. Uh, he got. Yeah, he and Will Moriarty had a great show together, and Will's yeah. no longer in radio, but um, it was just, oh, sorry, it was John Harris, uh, not Sean, but John Harris, who's doing yeah. the sideline for the Texans. They did four hours just of pure X's and O's on football. Yeah. And it was it was a great show, but you know what? Sadly, no one listened to that station at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. you had guys at David Nuno, too. So, yeah, it's a, it was a good time. It was a lot of, a lot of talent there, and, and you're right. A lot of it is still around in various, uh, in various places. So kind of goes to show you. 1560 itself probably wasn't built to last, but the talent that they had there definitely was. So definitely uh, look at, you know, the Rockets season just ending. Uh, I know you're covering it, you know, on a weekly basis with Adam Spillane on your prod podcast. So I guess just – Stay of the franchise, you know, where do you want to uh, throw, throw the first dart here? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the big thing right now is getting a coach. That's where we are in the in the news cycle, and that's where they are in their life cycle, is finding that coach that can get them through this transition. I, th- I think they are at the next phase of the rebuild where it, it's time to start being competitive now. Like, I think that you've had now three consecutive seasons here where you can say, hey, this was this was the reset. We're, you know, reestablishing the identity of the team and bringing in talent. And I do think they've done a decent job of that, of bringing in some talent. They just haven't really made it come together and, and look like anything cohesive. And so that's where I think they are now with the with the coaching search is that they're looking for somebody right now that can take what they've accumulated it talent wise and make it sing, make it look like one cohesive unit. And so that's where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm highly disappointed with where they are in the rebuild uh, with where, uh, with where th- I, I should say more so anything guys, how things look this past year. I was really expecting to feel a lot better about their core pieces coming out of this, this past season than I actually did. Now I say that, I feel better about them. I feel like I feel better about them than I did going in, but I don't feel as good as I would like to, if that would, if that makes sense. Like I I saw tangible improvement. I saw reasons for optimism, but I didn't see enough of it. I didn't see the consistency. I didn't see the effort. Um, At times it seemed like they weren't as motivated as you would like for them to be. And so I, you know, I, I think you're at a point now, especially if you're a Rockets fan, if you're somebody that pays attention to the Rockets, where you're looking to see who's going to be the one that comes in and holds them accountable from getting from here to there, from getting from, you know, lottery team to hopefully at the very least somebody that's competitive for the play in tournament uh, and somebody that you can consider to be a legitimate playoff team sooner rather than later. So I guess my my question and my follow to that is is what went wrong, right? Because you're I'm with you. I was coming into the season. I really thought Jalen Green would take a big step forward this year, and I I don't think anybody could argue that he took a a big one. Maybe he took a a little bunny hop or really to me lateral. But you know there just seemed to be so much promise. And I wonder if it's it's and maybe this is me, but Rockets Twitter is fantastic. 
you know, I don't know if you follow along to that at all, but you know, I'm wondering if like maybe I let guys like Roosh and them just hype me up too much about some of our talent coming out of year one that did I have too high of expectations? You know, is that something that could have gone with it as well? Did we as fans kind of get hyped on these young guys where, you know, you're going to score 100 points a game. Someone's going to have to score 25 or 30, right? Like it just so happened to be Jalen Green. Did we get hyped up for no reason? Yeah, with, with Jalen specifically, I think it's a couple of things. I think two things are true that might be conflicting in, in how you want to view it. I, I think it can be true that in some ways he was a – he, he was disappointing in some ways. Now, I don't think it's a, a matter of talent or ability, but I think there were times where you would have liked to have seen a greater effort from Jalen Green. There were times where you would have liked to have seen him take greater steps in leadership. Um, there were times where you would like to have seen his, quite frankly, just from a basketball standpoint, just his jump shot being more consistent. Like if you're going to be a, vo- a high volume scorer like that in today's NBA, you cannot be as inconsistent of a jump shooter as Jalen Green is right now at this moment. I mean, that's just a matter of fact. So so there are legitimate flaws to, to point out, legitimate holes in his game to, to 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 poke in. Like it's just that's just a fact of the matter, I think. But also I would Tim, I would caution us all on how because this speaks to your question about expectations, like how much to expect out of a guy who's 20 years old who's in year two and is 20 years old. And I don't use, I don't say that to make it as an excuse. I say it as something to like really consider like valid, like, okay, when is this, when is this kid actually supposed to mature and conduct himself like a man, you know? And I, and I'm not saying that he's not necessarily, I'm just saying that you got to consider that how young he is, that he's just, you know, everybody doesn't mature on the same timeline. You know, all 21 year olds are not created equal. Right. In terms of maturity. And so sometimes it just takes a little bit longer figuring that part of it out. I think year two is way too early to get down on Jalen Green, even though I'm you're talking to somebody. OK. And hearing from somebody right now who was down on him quite a bit at different times during the year when he would have a 30 point, 30 or 40 point game this this day. And then he's two for 13 the next day or whatever it is. You know, I would say as far as this game, the, the part that I would point to that that I was encouraged by about Jalen Green, and I just told you what I was discouraged by. The part I was encouraged by was the fact that he did seem to get a little a little bit stronger. And as far as shot selection, he understood. And I, and I don't feel like he always understood this as a rookie, but he understood this for the most part this year, that when that shot isn't falling, that inconsistent jump shot that I was just talking about, when that thing isn't falling, he can get to the rim and to the free throw line at will because there's basically no one that can stay in front of him. Very few people that can stay in front of him, force the issue, not force shots, but force the issue, get to the free throw line and try to get you a rhythm from there. I did appreciate that part of his game evolving. And I do think that there are things about him that you can feel good about, but yeah, no, it was a, it was overall a disappointing year because you expected him to take this larger leap and yeah, man, it, it, it might have been unfair. Maybe it was the case that, you know, we're, you know, as observers, as fans, as media, you want you want so badly interesting things to talk about and you want so badly to cover and or root for a winner. And so you're trying to expedite that process in your mind, not realizing that, hey, this, these folks have got to work on their own time and on their own timeline. So I think that's what's happening with Jalen Green. 
I think uh, in the direct comparison I've made on this show in past episodes, we talked about the Rockets, is that uh, Steven Silas reminds me a lot of Bo Porter. And I don't know what when you came to Houston or not, but I, oh, I, I remember, remember Bo. I remember um, Bo. I'm, I'm a born and raised Houstonian, so I remember Bo very well. Yeah, And I remember going to a Saber meeting, uh, which is an organization I'm a member of, and he came to speak to us. And I've, I've heard Larry Durker. I've heard Bill Garner. Uh, I didn't hit, get Jimmy Williams, but you know I've had you know I've heard all these other managers, and he was by far the most impressive guy I ever heard. I would have run through a wall for that guy, and, and I can't run through any walls. Uh, and the reason I, I made that comparison is that I, you know to me, Bo Porter is a guy that could be a manager today, but just he got into a horrible situation here that wasn't right for him. And I look at Steven Silas kind of the same way. I mean, Steven Silas came in; he was you know the architect of the best offense in the NBA in Dallas, you know, you know, had a lot of people saying, you know, he was the next up and coming coach and it just wasn't the right fit for him here. Now, obviously the Astros hire AJ Hinch and the rest is history. So who is the Rockets? AJ Hinch. Who, who is that guy? Do you think that you know, is the next really good fit? Yeah. See if it's, if it's an AJ Hinch, that's kind of a different, category right because it seems like the rockets are going to go in the space of or in the direction of hey let's get an experienced coach adam Spillane and i have talked about this on our podcast as, as you know tillman Fertitta being someone that wants to be able to say that he's bringing in a championship level coach that's why you hear a lot of the buzz about frank vogel because he's won a championship and he's a good coach on top of that but i feel like they're not going to go in sort of the like if they were going to go the AJ Hinch route, you could sort of look at the at Kevin Young, the assistant coach for for the Phoenix Suns that they that they interviewed, um, or, or or Sam Cassell, or you know someone like that, right? Um, and, I, and I think that could actually be it. Sam Cassell, if I were going to make the perfect sort of parallel to what you're asking me here, it'd probably be somebody like Sam Cassell. But it it does feel like though they're looking at you know, the more experienced Frank Vogel, Kenny Atkinson, Emmy Udoka, if that's something that they feel comfortable with on the, you know, on the sort of personal uh, human resources side, if I could, if, if that's the right way to say it. And, and, I don't, and I don't know what exactly, like that's one of the more, one of the larger mysteries that you'll find, um, at least for me anyway. But, but it seems like that's the direction that they're going to go in. If I had to handicap it right now, I feel like Frank Vogel's going to be the guy. I I really hope not. I, I really hope Frank Vogel's not the guy just because he had like one top five or top ten offense his entire coaching career. He's the guy – I mean, he was given the keys to the Lakers. You couldn't do it there. Like, he, he was successful – really only successful in one place when he had an absolutely stacked roster in Indiana. I I really like Ime Doku. Like, I really like that hire. I – I'm still not 100% sure what like, I, what happened in Boston. I, I know he had a relationship with like someone in the front office that seemed like it was fully consensual. It just seemed more if it was like against team policies more than like inappropriateness. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I, that's how I admit understood it. So if they had a, a consensual relationship, like I'm not as worried about that guy as if it was not consensual. Yeah, no, I, I mean, the, the the thing is, is, like I said, it's a mystery and so, sort of the details. I don't think consensual was ever the issue. 
it was more of a and honestly man we don't really know what happened so it's kind of reckless to to kind of speculate but it, it it sounds like it was an issue of who it was that the relationship was with like who the who the person was specifically and maybe the frequency in which the the issue was pushed in terms of you know basically like is is the guy going to be around here trying to sleep with all of the women in the office basically is kind of the question and can you and is that someone someone that you want to bring in let's not also pretend like we're all adults here let's not pretend like he would be the first one who would be like that if he's even like that but it's also a, a valid question to ask when you're talking about bringing in a leader in your organization. Well, I guess the, the close of the thing on Hitch, I, I don't know if I was so much wanted to go with his inexperience, which, you know, he did manage the Diamondbacks you know, before the Astros, but it seemed like his more of his analytical approach, at least, was a perfect fit at the time. And so, you know, coming from Boston, you know, he got that, you know, very young roster, you know, to the NBA Finals. So he seems like a guy that, you know, if you want to pair him with a young team, you know, it could be like a really bright spot where you could get, you know, these young players. Because I think, and, and you're, you've obviously, you cover the team, you know, more closely than, you know, Tim and I do. It, it, we keep hearing all these rumors that Rafael Stone is uh, interfering with practices and interfering with shoot-arounds and lineups and, and, and stuff like that. You know, number one, how much truth is there to that? Number two, you know, you know, who, you know, in addition to to him have the stones to stand up to Rafael Stone and say, nope, you're not doing that here. Yeah, there's there's absolutely some truth to it now. Like now how how much of an outlier is it? Like how different is it that a general manager would be involved as Rafael Stone has been? I don't know. I feel like general managers these days are fairly involved across all sports and, and, and basketball would be no different in that, in that sense, or the NBA would be no different in, in that sense. The thing that is kind of different is the story that, that, that we've heard and, and that I do believe to be true of him stopping a film session at one point to, to make a couple of points like, and that is the part that goes a little bit beyond what's normal. You normally don't have a general manager, stopping some sort of teaching session by the coach to insert his own sort of sort of thing you know unless that's kind of planned by them ahead of time hey we're talking to the team together sort of thing but to sort of interrupt and 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 sort of assert your input there is a little bit different and there is something to that there's absolutely something to that now how much of that is going to be an issue going forward how much of that was a deal where maybe Rafael felt like Steven Silas's personality made that so to where that maybe would be okay. You know, part of me wonders about that. Like, would he, like, would he try that with a Sam Cassell? Would he try that with a M.A. Yudoka? Would he try that even with a Frank Vogel? Like, I don't, I don't feel like that would go over well. And, and, and to Silas's credit, by all accounts, he did stick up for himself and say, Hey, you know, we can't, we can't have that, you know, in, in practices and things like that. So, it was addressed. Um, b- back to your question, though, about who could be the AJ Hinch. I think it would be like an Emma Udoka. You know, it's just a an, a hairy situation of exactly knowing what's going on there. But to me, it would be Emma Udoka. Like absent of this awkward thing that we're talking about surrounding him, he would easily be the top candidate on the board, at least for me, 
especially since the fact that, I mean, we can even consider all of this, especially considering the fact that he shouldn't be available in the first place. You know, like this is a, this is one of those where you're kind of lucky to even have an opportunity to have somebody like Ime Yudoka, uh, considering if you consider whatever the other thing is to be something you can get behind or get past, I should say. I think also too, when you, if you want to continue with that Astros comparison, when, when you rebuild with young players, at some point, you've got to bring some effective veterans in. When it's, when it's time to win, you've got to bring guys in who are not just there to teach you how to like play the game. They're here to teach you how to win. And there's been a lot of smoke to the James Harden coming back to Houston story. And I, you know, I'm curious if, if where there's smoke, there's fire there. Because I think he, he was able just to get away with so much here. Uh, you know, it's such carp wash privilege to the building, to the city, to do whatever the world he wanted to do. Um, I wonder if he misses that. I, I wonder if he misses just being able to be him and do what he wants to do and go out and ball and like people love him here. And I, I wonder if he misses that. And if he does, you know, do you see him as a guy who could come back and take this young group of guys, kind of like when LeBron went back to Cleveland, you know, and he took a really young basketball team. Uh, and he and he went to the finals with those guys with with Della Doba out there with uh, you know Tristan Thompson with with guys that had no business being on the floor in the NBA Finals uh, and he carried them there. I wonder if, if there's a chance that Harden comes back and, and takes these young guys and raises them to that next level. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I don't think that there's going to be anything close to what LeBron was able to accomplish when he went back to Cleveland. I just don't think Harden is going to be that level of player that you can build a team around and or, or not that you can't build a team around him, but he, he can't carry a team in the way that LeBron could carry a team. You know, he's someone that's going to have to go in and do, I think, the first part that you were talking about, be a veteran presence, be somebody that can kind of help show them how not even necessarily just how to win that can come with experience, but. Show, I, I, and this could be a splitting hairs, but should just show them what winning basketball looks like, what winning plays looks like, what what the smart basketball play is. You know, like that's something that they struggle with. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is a team that had a first year head coach that had kind of a passive personality, even though he's a really, really smart guy. They had a first year head coach or first time head coach, I mean to say, who wasn't really necessarily like assertive. Okay, and then at the same time, had a a guy who was experimenting at point guard, had never played point guard before. So your head coach and your point guard are both somewhat out of their elements, somewhat new to their roles and their position. And I didn't feel like that was a good mix. You know, I think if you substitute that, and this isn't a shot at Steven Silas, I think in a different situation, kind of Scott, like you were saying, in a different situation, he probably could have been really good. This just wasn't it. But you substitute Steven Silas, inexperienced head coach with an experienced head coach, or at least somebody with a, maybe with a higher ceiling, let's just call it Ime Udoka, and then bring in, like forget the point guard experiment and actually bring in somebody that's played point guard at a high level in the NBA before, as James Harden has, I think that could have a tremendous effect and a tremendous impact on those young players. Um, I, I think it would, for one thing, put Kevin Porter Jr. back into a, a more a role that is more natural to him and more complimentary of what he actually is instead of trying to force him to be something that he isn't. 
even though I do think he's improved or improved in that way. But I mean, improvement looked like, you know, a, a team that turns the ball over at a tremendous clip. And, you know, like if, if Kevin Porter Jr. is your best decision maker and shooter, you know, the, you've got some personnel issues, you know, let's just be honest. And so I think, yeah. I think that James Harden would immediately correct both the, the point guard issue at large and also he would address a shooting issue. This team didn't have anybody that could shoot the ball. I mean, outside of like Eric Gordon and Kevin Porter Jr. And of course, Eric Gordon gets traded at the trade deadline. I know a lot of people were, were even, you know, happy about that, felt like that needed to happen anyway. But these guys didn't have any shooters. I mean, Garrison Matthews was the only guy that could shoot on the team. He got traded, of course, as well. Like they need they need that. And I think Harden would provide that. Now, <laughs> that's not to say that it wouldn't be tremendously awkward and weird because I was here and I was covering the team when everything went south and just the idea that it could go from the way it ended to being back just a few years later. I mean, I guess if LeBron can go back to Cleveland, then certainly Harden could, could come back to Houston. But I do understand everybody that that's looking around and thinking, well, wait, what? Why would anybody here that cares about the Rockets want to welcome somebody like that back? Uh, but but I think for basketball reasons, and there is an emotional tie, too, between Harden and the organization. But I think for basketball reasons, it does make sense. I think uh, Harden is such an interesting it's an interesting case because and, and I'm, I'm older than both of you guys. So, I mean, I've watched the Rockets since the early 80s. Outside of Akeem, he's he's the best Rocket ever outside of Akeem uh, on the basketball court. Uh, and I, you know, he probably, if you're looking at, you know, if you're looking at more of a stats heavy look at things, he probably deserves three or four MVP awards right there. You know, whether you won one, you know, certainly when Russell Westbrook won that, you know, for getting the triple double average, you know, Harden was a better player. Yes. I mean, it d- d- demonstrably better player. Giannis still won two. Harden should have had three in a row. If you looked at his number, like the year he won, he had like 40. 30, uh, 30, point games, uh, 30 points in a row for like 30 straight games or something like that. And then he had like a stretch of like 50, 45, 61, like hard got robbed. Well, and when you look at his playoff performance as a Rocket, if you look at it in the aggregate, he's basically doing what he did the regular season. And so I think that's what a lot of people focus on that last game against the Spurs in that one series where he just disappeared. You know, and, and that's certainly, you know, understandable. I guess my question is, though, is we all know what Harden is off the court. And so the question is, as a basketball player, he's what this team needs. But as a person, is he who you want these young guys looking up to? Yeah, so what I would say about that, honestly, the the point that I would make about that is, like it or not, he's already somebody that they look up to. Like that's that's the part of it that we got to consider too with James Harden, especially being, I mean he's thirty three now. I mean he's been a re- relevant player in the NBA now for about a decade. So uh, and, and these kids, think about that. You know Jalen Green was born in two thousand two. Jabari Smith was born in two thousand three. Which is to say they were born recently. <laughs> You know, they're, they were like born in recent times, like, and were children, small children, when James Harden was first really becoming a thing in the NBA. And, and of course, Jalen Green is from the same part of the, 
you know, same part of the country, you know, from California, Southern California guy, um, or at least Harden is. And, you know, uh, Jalen Green, I think, is from Fresno. But but there, there's a connection there. James Harden works out here in Houston uh, in the offseason. He's worked out at that practice facility with some of these young guys. There just flat out is a connection there and a level of respect. Now, I mean, I know your question basically is like, is that the influence that you want around these young guys? I think it's a valid concern. I think it's a valid thing to be concerned about. But I've always responded to that question with, I don't feel like it could get a whole lot worse. You know, like I don't I don't feel like you insert Harden into the situation and he makes it worse. Now, could he is it worse because he's not making it tremendously better? I'm sure you could look at it like that. But yeah, no, Harden is not going to necessarily be a model of what to how to necessarily carry yourself off the court per se. Um, but I I mean, I think the hope is that the the basketball stuff is what really rubs off. And like, it, you know, as far as the off the court, for me, I kind of just hope that that's just a little bit overplayed, you know, in terms of like, hey, because Harden's in the strip club. So all these other guys are going to be in the strip club. I kind of maybe I'm just a cynic, but I kind of just already view it like Harden stuff is just really public. But that's what a lot of these guys do, man. That's like, what I was thinking, too. Like, yeah, they all go out. They yeah. all go out and like. Harden is Harden is well known just because like he goes out to a very specific type of establishment on right. a what I'll call nightly basis. I was fortunate enough when I was at uh, UH, I went to uh, I was in journalism school. I was in class with the Rockets towel boy, and he was like, "Dude, I went out with Harden and Dwight last night, and you would not believe the amount of money that I watched right onto the stage. Like he was just flabbergasted on the amount that these two just made rain." So, like, yeah, it's well-known. But you know what? Everybody goes out. So if you're going to go out, why not look at the guy who went out and balled the next day better than anybody else realistically ever has? Like, what drove me crazy is everybody in Houston predicted this year that Jalen Green would have a bad game in Miami because he turned 21 the night before. They were already in Miami. He turns 21 in Miami. And you know what he does? He goes out and he lays an egg in Miami because he partied his ass off too hard. You know who never did that? James Harden. He partied his ass off and then went and dropped 50. So, like, I don't care what you do the night before as long as you show up ready to play. Like, not everybody's Michael Jordan. Like, everybody has their own way to win. And if you're still balling, that's fine. Don't hurt the team. But that's what these guys don't know. They don't know how to go out and not hurt the team. And I think that might actually be where James could help them a little bit. I, you know what? I, I do actually think that's a key distinction, though, as far as with James. I know it was a lot. It was real frustrating and kind of – made you give the side eye a little bit to how the Rockets as an organization sort of accommodated his off the court habits, if you will. But James Harden, say what you will, always showed up, like showed up for, and you know, like that doesn't mean he played it well in every game, but in most games, and he always showed up and played a lot of minutes. And like, you want, what's the big criticism of the NBA right now? guys resting and what do we call it load management james harden is the anti-load management guy you know like he played every night played a lot of minutes and went out there and ball whether he was hung over or whatever you want to say he might have been you know he went out there and took care of business and so if there was anybody that could teach them the work hard play hard uh dynamic it would be james harden i think 
Yeah, I'll never stand for any hardened slander. I, I would. I'm one of those people who welcome him back with open arms. I, I have nothing but. Yeah, he left weird, but I love James Harden as a, as a Rockets fan. Like nothing but love. I guess what's exciting about him too is that you know they they're supposedly the Rockets. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. Have 60 million, you know, underneath the cap. So I mean, they could afford to bring in a you know a second significant player. You know, if he did choose to come back and. And that's one of the things you did see with Harden at Houston is he cycled through, you know, uh, his second stars. I mean, he had Dwight Howard. Uh, he started off with Jeremy Lin, I guess, if that's a star. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe we could just kind of toss that aside. But, you know, he, he tired of Chris Paul. You know, he brings in Russell Westbrook. They, you know, suddenly don't get along. You know, he's going to New, uh, New Jersey where he's got Kyrie Irving. He's got uh, – and then, you know, now with the 76ers, yeah, who do you see, like, would be an ideal Robin for, you know, Harden to the role as Batman? Ideal. I mean, ideal. You, you get James Harden and you get Jalen Brown as well. And I think, I think all of a sudden the dynamic of your team completely changes. Like, you're talking about going from being a lottery team and then hopefully making that transition right now, you're talking about hopefully making that transition into a play in team to now with James Harden and Jalen Brown, you should be for sure a playoff team in the, you know, in the NBA, like maybe a middle seed four or five seed or something like that. But I mean, that, that to me should make you competitive along with whatever you keep, whatever is held over with that, um, with the young talent that's already there. So, I mean, to me, that's the ideal uh, situation, um, you know, beyond that, like the, James Harden is the huge, it's like the huge free agent focus. And then beyond that, it's the, you know, it's build, building through the draft and hoping that that lottery pick is what they hope that it is. Uh, so, but an ideal Robin, I mean, beyond that, I'm not sure like that. And that to me, I think is important to think about too, Scott, as far as like what they do in free agency this year, as they have all of that money, James Harden's one of the better players. Is probably the best player that's going to be available to spend the money on. It's not the word on it is that it's not a super impressive free agent class to begin with. So like, why not throw a bunch of money at Harden and and just kind of continue building that way? Like another answer to your question could be, and I know it's a free agency based question, but maybe the Batman's already on the team, right? Maybe maybe it's Alperin Shingoon. I think so. Yeah, I think you know, you're right there. He's a, he's the perfect big for Harden. He's the yeah. perfect big to play with Harden. Yeah, like imagine those two in pick and rolls, or and, and 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 alternating on running the offense through either one or the other. Like it, it is. I think as Tim is saying, it could be the perfect yin and yang. Um, if you wanted to look at an ideal uh, Robin to 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 Harden's Batman, I would I would say Alperin Shingoon. I think you need a shooter too. You need a you need a, a dead eye shooter. Like that's what that's what drove me crazy. I, I'm a big Daryl Morey guy, and, and I've put my actually put my foot in my mouth to um, Donnie Nelson's son when he was still the GM of the Mavericks, and I was like, "Yeah, Daryl Morey's the best GM in the league." And I'm just sitting there talking to Donnie Jr. Uh, and my boss is like, "You know, that's that his, his dad's a GM, man. You're just sitting there telling him how better Daryl Morey is than his dad." I'm like, well, "What do you want from me?" But the thing that drove me crazy with Maury, if you ran this offense that was designed to shoot threes, and we never, never had a guy who was just knocked down dead eye from three. Like we never went after a JJ Redick or a, 
uh, a sniper, Steve Novak. If you, I just feel like we never had that guy who was just like, don't leave him open. Like PJ, maybe, but like we just never had a three-point legit specialist, in my opinion, when Harden was here. Yeah, I don't know about that, man. I felt like I felt like that was the thing that those teams did with, like the ones that almost went to the finals. Um, I, I know a lot of people forget about probably about Luke and Bamute and PJ Tucker. He was Tucker. so hurt in the playoffs. He yeah, was, yeah, he, for he was sure, hurt. for sure, for sure. But I just mean it's in terms of how the team was orchestrated. I feel like it was. I mean, that was how it was designed. Like everybody just kind of and, and and guys didn't like it. You know, everybody just kind of stand around and wait for James to decide to pass the ball or decide that he's done dribbling, um, and be ready to shoot. You know, that that to me, and I, I agree that they could have done better. They they should have done a better job. Like the names that you mentioned, if they could have gotten one of those guys, like they did not have a shooter that was on that level. But they had guys that could knock down shots way more. So, like, it's hard for me to, to think about it like that now, especially looking at what's on the team now. And, like, <laughs> I would kill for anybody like that, like a P.J. Tucker or somebody that could just knock down a corner three as opposed to, like, a team that has n- – this – is a team what you've watched over the last three years. This is a team with no shooting. I mean, it is it is desperate, like really, Maybe. really bad. And, and but I and I agree with your initial point. They need to find it. Like they yeah. they need a, they need to find a knockdown shooter for sure. Yeah, and I I think uh, obviously everybody wants Victor. Uh, you know, everybody's praying for Victor. But yeah, you know, I'm gonna go with the assumption that we don't get the first overall pick. That's a fair yeah, assumption. The odds, you know, probably gets that. Which, you know, we did with the tiebreaker. I don't know if you saw that, Tim. We we won the tiebreaker with the Spurs, so we're guaranteed at least the sixth, you know, worse. So, you know, assume if we assume James Harden is on this team, uh, in terms of like a rookie talent, where right, what positions do you think you know you think they should target, you know, to kind of fill out the bench and or or, or a starting lineup if they don't have something in there? Yeah, I think the things that they're lacking just as a team are, again, like I mentioned, shooting and shot blocking, rim protection. I don't feel like they had a whole lot of that. And so those would be the things that I would look at. Uh, We were talking about free agency earlier. Like, I don't think I realize, uh, you know, Seth Curry is a free agent. That's somebody that's like, okay, would he want to go to a, you know, he want to be on a competitive team or could you throw some money at a guy like that and he'd be a knockdown shooter for you? That's just as a name, you know, somebody that's a, like a shooting specialist, right? So that I mean, that's where I'm at in terms of the draft, you know. And I don't know how things are going to fall. It's really hard to to really predict this sort of thing without knowing who's targeting who and who's targeting what, especially in a lottery, you know, not not knowing where everybody's going to be placed. But I mean, th- their most desperate needs, without a doubt, are shooting, perimeter shooting, and and rim protection. Like, I, I think that they need a point guard or could use some help at point guard. At the, at the very least, they need either a backup point guard or to figure out exactly what they have in some of the younger guys uh, in terms of, like, Ty Washington or some of the guys that are in the G League. Like, are they interested in that, or do you want to solidify that a little bit more with a point guard? But I would say, you know, it, with, with respect to and consideration to the idea of them going out and getting James Harden, that – yeah, and so I'd put point guard a little bit to the side there. I would say three-point shooting, perimeter shooting, first and foremost, but I, but also you need some rim protection because, you know, I, I think that Alperin Shingun can be your starting center going forward, 
I've got my I've got some serious doubts about him on the defensive end. Just, to, you know, not not that he can't improve, but how like what is the ceiling there? Like you might need some backup there. And then Jabari Smith, I'm tr- still trying to figure out if he's going to be more of a perimeter player or if he's going to be a guy that could be that that rim protector. I mean, he's tall enough, but he's so doggone skinny. He's going to fill out his, his frame's going to fill out as he gets older. But yeah, I, I, I've I've got a, I've got a hard time imagining either one of those guys being like legitimate rim protectors in the near future at the very least. So I, I'd want to see them get get that at the very least. Yeah, if, if we get James Harden, all this is hypothetical, right? We're, we're discussing this in a vacuum here. But if, if Harden comes back home, I've got I got two names uh, from my alma mater that I think would be big uh, big help for the Cougars. If, if it, somehow we fall to six, I think Jairus Walker uh, at six coming out of UH is a guy that is a ferocious defender, great rebounder. Could hit the jump shot, very athletic. You want to put him in a pick and roll with James Harden going downhill. Good luck on that. Um, he would be impactful. And then, you know, if you can find a way to sneak back in at the end of the first round, I think he'll be there. Marcus Sasser uh, is a great shooter. You want to have him come off the bench as your sixth man and run that run that squad. He's gonna get some good looks for you, and he can learn and develop behind James Harden. And I think he's a guy eventually who could be a Kyle Lowry. Uh, type player in the NBA who can go get his own shot and create and help the other team, help the team get going. So um, I'd like to see one of those two, or you know, hopefully both would be great if they both stayed home. But after what happened with Grimes and we took Christopher instead, I, I don't want to set myself up for disappointment. Grimes was there on the table and we go for, for Christopher. We, you know, you see how that worked out. Yeah, man. Um it's funny, I you mentioned Grimes, man. That's somebody that I that I talked to right before that draft. And I don't I don't know if I had even thought about the Rockets having that opportunity to get him. I you know, I was just wanting him to go to a place where he could actually play and succeed. I hadn't really thought about, you know, bringing the U of H guys to Houston. You know, they, they did it with Amar, with Armani Brooks a couple of years ago. You know, it's great when you can try to bring those local guys, but it's really it's really hard to do. And you also don't want I mean, you want to be careful about doing too much of the you know i know the texans tried to do this uh, last year where it's like hey we're going to go get a bunch of guys that are from texas but it's like but do those guys actually fit is that actually the you know the, the exactly the direction you want to go in now the examples that you use i, I do like especially jerris I'm, I'm honestly not sure what kind of nba player marcus sasser is going to be i think he's going to be an nba player but to what level to what degree like I, i'm honestly i'm honestly not sure i do think that jerris could come in and be an impact player for somebody fairly soon um, gives me like almost like Kavon Looney type of vibes. Like he could be something some somewhat similar to that on, on a, on a really good team. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I would love to see the Rockets end up with something like that. Um, but, but I mean, they gotta be looking at point guard, man. You think about those, uh, those brothers from overtime elite, the Thompson brothers. Um, you figure if you were able to land one of those guys, they're long. Um, I think it's, um, I'm in who's the one who's the point guard, who's more of the point guard um, and considered to be the better player. Um, and of course, Scoot Henderson, if that's a, if that's a possibility at number two, but I, I think there's some opportunities there. Um, you know, Carson Wallace from Kentucky is somebody that's talked about a lot. Um, you know, there, there's, there's some opportunities there for sure. And, and, and obviously, you know, like I mentioned before, they're going to need to find some knockdown shooting, whether it's through the draft or free agency. I honestly don't care where they find it. 
They, I, I feel like the nucleus is fine in terms of, hey, look, and, and this is with the hypothetical of James Harden. James Harden, Jalen Green, Alperin Shingoon, Jabari Smith, but you need shooting, you need defense, you need rim protection. And so what you surround them with is, I think, really important this offseason. I know uh, Tim threw out a question in show prep, and we've been talking about a 60-win uh, team over the last three seasons. So let me, let me press the rewind button uh, go back to some happier times. You know, the question Tim threw out was, who is your favorite role player from Rockets history? And I think that, I thought that was a very a very interesting question to hear some answers on. Yeah, so you you guys allowed me a top three in our show prep. There, you said I could get a top three, so I did think of three. And I'm be honest, I actually had four, and I struggled with my third. So here's my list. Favorite role player in Rockets history is going to be Vernon Maxwell, and I know that there was some toxicity associated with that okay i'm not trying to have revisionist history on that and of course i was a young i was a, i was a child at the time a small child but all of the stories and everything that i know about vernon vernon maxwell i appreciate what he represents and what he was about had that dog in him uh was somebody that i think gave michael jordan fits you know people forget about that like and and scott i know you, you were somebody who was around and, and watched that can appreciate what i'm saying here like the notion that the rockets wouldn't have been able to compete with the Bulls had Michael Jordan not played baseball and retired like that. That's someone who either had just has is, is over romanticizing Michael Jordan or just simply was not there watching those Rockets teams, not familiar with with what those Rockets teams were about. And I really love Vernon Maxwell's kind of role in that ecosystem, uh, you know, until things went a little bit sour. So Vernon Maxwell, number one. The second one's going to throw you off a little bit, Scott. I hope you're ready for this one. Moochie Norris. Moochie Norris is on my list, man. And it was because, I mean, it was the, sometimes I know it could be maddening some of the things he would do. Like that whole era of Rockets basketball between Moochie Norris, Steve Francis, Catino Mobley, all the guys that played around that time dribbled way too damn much. We can, we can acknowledge it's like, dude, pass the ball, shoot the ball, but stop dribbling so much. But there was just something about Moochie Norris's personality and energy and, and, and a vibe that he brought to the team that I always like. Now, at that point, I am coming of age, Scott, right? I am getting a little bit older and getting to appreciate the game a little bit more. And so I think that's why that's a little bit more particular to me and where I was in my life at that point. So we go Vernon Maxwell, Moochie Norris. And guys, I cannot decide. My third one is, is somewhere is someone between Carl Landry and Chuck Hayes. I, I, I'm not sure. Like, I don't, I don't know which direction. I Like, I'm conflicted. I, you can sell me on either one. You can pick for me and I'd be happy with either one. I struggle with trying to figure out which one. If something tells me that I'd probably lean toward Chuck Hayes, but Carl Landry's right there with him. So those are my top three, four-ish if I'm cheating a little bit. Yeah, I like those answers. And what I love about them is that, you know, they, they represent, like, your prime childhood, right? Yes. And so, like, I go back a little bit further. Because uh, I remember uh, my dad got this tickets to this special event where we got to beat the Rockets. And I was so excited. And we go there, and there's no Akeem. There's no Ralph Sampson. There's no, no Rodney McRae. And I'm like, this is the entire starting front court, and you're not here. But I got to take a picture with uh, Robert Reed, Bobby Joe yeah. Reed. And I, I remember him from the from '86. I was I was fairly young, so you know you didn't know 
all the intricacies of basketball, but you, you knew that John Lucas was out for the season. And, and as a kid, didn't really understand why. Uh, but, you know, of course, we know what now why. And so Robert Reese threw that role as a, as a point guard. He's like, you know, he's six foot eight, six foot nine. You know, he's, you know, he's a guy that, you know, is a guy that comes off the bench, could probably play, you know, three or four different positions. And now he's the starting point guard. And they managed to get to the NBA Finals, even with that. Uh, and so, yeah, great memories. I think, you know, the championship years were my prime because that was like I graduated from high school, uh, the first championship, did the second championship in college. So Vernon Maxwell, I, I love that answer. He backed down from nobody. He was, I mean, he, yeah, you're right. Michael Jordan hated to play him. And he, yeah, he got the best out of everybody. And I still love watching him on Twitter, how much he just sticks in Utah's, you know, just gives it to him every chance he gets. But the guy on that team actually underrated, because you compare him to Carl Landry, but Carl Herrera is a, a nice, a nice yes. bench player on that team. And a guy that could come off the bench and really could spell, you know, either Akeem or Otis Thorpe, you know, that first team. Otis Thorpe's kind of an underrated guy, too. Yes. Um, I thought about him as an answer. I, I, I struggled with that because I was like, man, Otis Thorpe was a role player, but he was such a key role player. I almost felt him and Scola were guys I was uncomfortable with because they were so important. They were role players. But I started having a little bit of semantics argument with myself on – whether yeah. I even wanted to call them that, you know, because of how important they were to their teams. Yeah, Bucci Norris, I think he's a fun pick. He, he was part of the fun, you know, Rockets period where, but where they ne- weren't necessarily a great team, but, you know, they were fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, another guy, you know, obviously not a role player, but, you know, they had that one year with Ron Artest, you know, that's always, you know, kind of some fun, you know, fun times. But I think from that period on that team, the guy that really, you know, sticks in my memory is Shea Battier. I mean, he's obviously a starter, so, you know, we do have that kind of role player question. But he's a guy that didn't put up numbers necessarily, but he could knock down some big shots, and he could lock down some really good perimeter play. Absolutely. Oh, Scott, you know, you really messed up my list taking Shane Battier there. I, I had survived for a while, but uh... – Batty was my guy growing up, man. I was I was there on the court to do three things. I was there to rebound. I was there to play defense, and I was there to hit threes. That was my job on the Clear Lake Intermediate boys basketball team. And and Battier for that reason was my guy. So got to rethink things a little bit. I'll, I'll start off uh, number three. Carl Landry for me was a guy who uh, second round pick out of Purdue. Uh, just a ton of energy when he came into the game. He came in that same year as Scola. Uh, and, and just because of what happened with Yao, Scola kind of became a lot more of a focal point of the offense than he really wanted him to be. Um, so, so Landry was that guy who came off the bench. But he was, man, he, he was bringing the thunder. He brought it hard when he came in. So I, that's my, uh, my number three pick there for me. Um, number two, uh, the Chuck Wagon, Chuck Hayes. Um, you know, just the worst free throw stroke in the history of the NBA. You know, someone was going to lane violation like two times a game, but you could not move that man off his spot. Like you talk about the fattest ass in the NBA, like you were not moving Chuck Hayes at all anywhere off his spot. And he was going to make you earn it for, for as long as he was going to be out there. I just, I was such a huge Chuck Hayes guy. Um, and number one, 
I'm gonna give you the Dikembe when Dikembe was the uh, was the backup center uh, for your Houston Rockets. Um, again, a guy who probably had to play a little bit more than he wanted to with with Yao's injury, but Dikembe was part of some fun times here in Houston. And then you know his 20 minutes a game, him finger wagging at people, and then hitting a full baseball pass all the way down the court uh, was some fantastic times in the Toyota Center. Yeah, man, I, I like all of those. So, so, Tim, you and I, I cheated a little bit because I went and I, you asked me for three and I gave you four because I actually couldn't decide between Chuck Hayes and Carl Landry. So I made them share the three spot because I just struggled to make a decision that badly. I, I like them both so much. Um, and I was as I was telling Scott before, you know, my top two, uh, number one, Vernon Maxwell and number two, Somewhat of a forgotten name, not just in Rockets history, but you know, obviously NBA history as well, would be Moochie Norris. You know, I love like, Moochie. You know, and and the days when he would, the days when he, and that was also like the Afro for us. You know, like Afros and cornrows was that was like the the the, the style of the day. And he would come out there with the you you never know. He Huge, yeah. It was, it was, he did change a lot. You never he knew might, what Moochie had. He might do the cornrows. Obviously, people are doing everything with their hair now. It's not even weird or unco- like uncommon or different to see. But back then, it wasn't as common to just see a guy have cornrows and then, you know, the the afro the next day. He, like, represented something to me that was real specific to, like, you know, where, where we were at the time, where I was at the time. Like, I could have easily seen Moochie Norris as, like, my next door neighbor or the guy that I see at the gas station all the time or something like that. And there he was out there playing for the Rockets. So my number, if I had to go with a fourth guy, you know, since you went with four, uh, the guy that I think goes purpose short. Oh yeah. Uh, because you know, he, I, you know, my shot was kind of patterned after him. Now, now my job was different than Tim's job when I was on the uh, junior high team. My job, I, I kept the bench from flying up in the air. I had to, you know, keep sitting down on that bench, you know, make sure it didn't, <laughs> make sure it didn't go anywhere, right? But you know, when I did go in the game, you know, I had that rainbow three, you know, and sometimes it went in, most of mine didn't, but yeah, but I just loved his, you know, that arc. You know, it's just such a beautiful shot to watch. Uh, don't know how efficient he was, but you know. Hey, I was young, so you know, you got you got to sue me on that one. Since everybody's taking four, you know, I'll come back in and take a fourth because it is a hard conversation. I'll take Big Shot Bob. You know, okay, uh, okay, you know, I like guy, that. legend, legend of the game. People forget he got to start with the Rockets. Um, was just pivotal down the stretch in that first uh, NBA championship, and I just I love like when everybody talks about Rob Dory, you just always got to remind him, hey, his first ring came as a Rocket, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First two, first yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. He he has a handful of them, definitely. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm not gonna take a fifth, but since we're just having <laughs> this conversation, going round and round. we're having a conversation, so I'm just gonna throw this out there. Since you took Big Shot Bob, if, if I were doing, I would have done Mario Ellie, but I don't think you can go wrong with either one. Like the the kiss of death is just a moment for me. Yeah. I have the I have the T-shirt somewhere in my bedroom over there um of the you know the kiss of death that moment there was just something about mario ellie's game too that and it's funny i I would think this as a kid and then i I eventually met mario ellie and and have seen him in person quite a bit since then and like but when you watch him on tv and you don't know anything about like what you're really looking at you look at mario ellie and they go i could do that i could be mario ellie 
you know, like it doesn't what he's doing doesn't look particularly hard. And then you look at him in person and you're like, oh, he's definitely six, five and yoked up, you know, built like a rock. Like, no, actually, I can't be anything like Mario Eli. Actually, that's a that's a ridiculous thought. But he it, it felt like that watching him. You're like, oh, you know, you talk about yourself, Tim, being the guy that just, you know, the job was to shoot threes and to play defense and all that. Mario is out there shooting threes. It, it felt it felt like an every man's kind of game at the time. And I know that's an older Mario Eli I'm talking about, but it, it did feel that way watching him. Uh, I love talking about great role players. You know, these are the fun times. But yeah, I was gonna we were kind of shift our conversation. Somebody has stuck in our craw this week, uh, and I know you know Tim. Tim's been firing off some good ones the last few weeks, but uh, we're gonna let you lead off. Like who? Who is a guy in the sports world that you think has been a scumbag this week? Yeah, I don't I don't know how it could be anybody other than Draymond Green, you know, for me, you know, and, and I get that Sabonis grabbed his leg and that's not cool. I'm not excusing that. I understand that that happened. But Draymond Green stomped on that man's chest and like lifted up like he didn't just give him like a little love tap. You know, which I could I could see if you're if you're kind of a petty player and you want to get it and get a cheap shot in. This was like a transparent, like stomp in the chest and lift up, you know, um, and, and it's not like it's a, a huge shocker or anything that Draymond Green would do that. But I mean, come on, you, you can't stomp a guy in the chest like you can shake you could shake him off if you need to. Do whatever you need to, but a but a stomp. I mean, come on, that that's the one that's in my crawl right now, man. Yeah, he, he's and that's not the first time he's done that. You know, he's he's had some maybe not a stomp, but he's had some questionable decision making that's happened in the playoffs specifically, and it's cost his team uh, with him being suspended before. So I, I think that's a fantastic pick. Well, for me, I think it's – I'm going to go with Anthony Bass. And for those of you who don't know the story of, of Anthony Bass, this is a guy who makes more than $2 million a year to give up a 7.11 ERA when he comes out of the bullpen for the Blue Jays. And his wife – and again, it's tough. I have – you know, I have a 9-year-old stepdaughter and a baby on the way. I can only imagine – how hard it is to travel with two children by yourself, but his, his children created a mess on a plane and the airline uh, attendant asked his, his wife, Hey, can you clean up after your kids? A very, very reasonable request. Anthony Bass hops on Twitter and proceeds to try and get the flight attendant fired. And I think Jeff Blum handled it absolutely perfectly last night when Bass came into the game and Jeff Blum and I quote said Anthony Bass in here to do a little cleanup now and uh, was just absolutely fantastic to hear in a 9-2 game. I tip my cap to Blummer as I normally do and uh, can I, I think Bass is, a, is, is just unbelievably arrogant to think that his children could just make a mess on the floor. He's, no one should clean it up except the people who work there because you know that's how America is to clean up after me. I'm a millionaire. Those those are excellent picks. Uh, Scott, I uh, accidentally muted you. 
Um, uh, those are excellent picks. I was thinking about Rudy Gobert, you know, on the same along the lines that Brandon was talking about, you know, with him getting suspended for, you know, fighting his own teammate. That's, that's kind of weird. Um, but I have to stick with my Astros. And I'm just going to say this, you know, Jim Crane has been the best owner probably of any sport in Houston history. Leslie Alexander, I think, is up there, obviously, because he brought the other Rockets of titles. But I would have to throw out Jim Crane just for this reason, that I think he knew he didn't want Click back at the end of the year. I think we knew you know, where that situation was going, and yet we went from November until damn near March before he hires Brown. And I, I love the data Brown hire. Um, I think, you know, with the direction that baseball is going, I think, you know, having a great farm system is really, you know, direction you want to go. And he, you know, being in Atlanta and Toronto, you know, they developed some really good talent, you know, those places. So I love Dana Brown, but we went those three months, you know, November, December, January, actually almost four because we went through February where we're just kind of twiddling our thumbs. We're not doing much. And it's clear looking at this team that this team needs something else. And I can't really put my finger on what it is exactly. I mean, I would love another hitter. Uh, I might have gone Andrew Benintendi in left field other than Michael Brantley if it were me. Because, you know, I think the ability to be available is, is an important one. Um, I might have gone Wilson Contreras, although that contract kind of scares me a little bit, you know, with the Cardinals game. Um, I might have gone to, you know, another starting pitcher because I'm sorry, there's no reason anybody should trust Lance McCullers Juniors at this point really to do anything. And it saddens me because I love him. I love what he did, you know, 2017. I love him what he did for most of 2021. It's just you can't count on him to be healthy. And so now you've got five starters and you're counting on every one of them to be on point. And, you know, most of them are young. And I just don't think that it was very realistic to expect all of them to come back and bounce back and perform well after a really long World Series season. Um, I'm selfish. I know this run's going to end at some point. I was just hoping to milk another year or two out of it while we still have Altuve and Bregman under contract. And while we still have Tucker, you know, under, you'd say slave labor when you're getting, you know, six or seven million dollars, but, you know, he deserves a whole lot more money. Uh, it's just hard. Uh, and I don't know what that move would have been. That's why I'm not the general manager. But I, I, I'm just mad at Crane for not jumping on this sooner because he knew this was going to happen. I mean, this was his decision ultimately. Man, uh, I don't think I could have said any of that better myself. Uh, I, Scott, honestly... I've tried to say exactly everything that you just said on the radio a number of times. And I, and I think I have, but you just said it better. I think you put it better and a lot more calmly and reasonable than I've managed to do so on the radio in my time. I think one of the, I think I, I pose it as a question more than anything and you just made it as a point, but like, are we going to look back at the off season and think, Man, that little two-month stretch, whatever little, however long that was exactly, that stretch that they went without a general manager, how costly was that? You know, like it, they made, they were able to make some moves that seem like, 
you know, anybody could have made, you know, like Jose Abreu, you didn't need to be a general manager to, to think that it's a good idea to sign Jose Abreu. And I know that there's a mixed review, you know, mixed reviews right now on Jose Abreu and whether that, that was even a good signing, but it's Jose Abreu in, in baseball circles. That's a household name. It's a no brainer kind of, kind of name to pursue if you're going to move on from Yuli. And then the Rafa Montero thing, I think there's some holes you can poke into that. But that was also not something that you needed to be like a savvy general manager to make that move. But some of the things along the margins, like think about this, guys. Dusty Baker was just complaining either yesterday or the day before about, I don't want to say complaining is the right word because I was reading transcripts. I actually wasn't there for this part. But he was talking about their lack of depth, like what's on their bench is just a bunch of inexperience and just a bunch of unproven guys. And like, I think you got to just let those guys play and figure out what you've got, but it does speak to a larger issue that I feel like the Astros have had for the last, I don't know, call it three years or so where depth has been a serious issue for this team, whether it's James click as the general manager or, you know, them not having a general manager for a certain number of weeks. And then now of course, Dana Brown is the guy. Um, but but they have not been able to adequately address their depth issues, I feel like. Um, and, and that's going to come back to bite them when, when you've got guys that you're relying on, the way you're relying on Jose Altuve, the way they're relying on Michael Brantley. And your point is well taken, Scott, about Andrew Benintendi. I'm fine with Michael Brantley, but I, your, your point is well taken. I think it's a fair one. But if you're going to rely on Michael Brantley, if you're going to rely on Jose Altuve, like you would like to feel like you've got some kind of depth behind these guys. If, if you know if those guys are going to be out for a significant portion of the beginning of the season. And, you know, it's not about overreacting to early baseball. It's about how big of a hole are you going to dig yourself in? You know, how many, how many series are you going to win one of three? You know, how many times is that going to happen before you really start to get concerned about it? So, uh, so, so my big complaint, I, I went on that whole spiel just to say my big complaint is that they didn't adequately address the depth issues on this team. And I don't know exactly what those moves would have been either, but you know, like, like one easy one for me to give you would have been re- bringing back a let miss Diaz, you know, as a guy who I know struggled toward the end of last year, but you felt pretty good about any role that you put him in, like in the field or at the plate. And I, again, I know he struggled at the plate toward the end there, but Who's the, I mean, who's the Aledmus Diaz now? Like you're hoping that that ends up being like David Hensley or Mauricio, Mauricio Dubon, who's been pretty good or really good, I should say, to start the year. But, but there's just not a lot of discernible depth on this, on this baseball team. Right. That is absolutely, I mean, one of the ones I was thinking of an easy one is Andrew Chafin was sitting out there for most of the offseason, even after Brown got hired. Um, and, you know, he's, now I think he's is he the D backs closer? I mean, uh, I look at that. Sounds the, right. Uh, but he, you know, he's a guy that a lefty you know you could throw in. I mean, he's you know they had Will Smith last year at the end of the year, did not pitch in the playoffs. You didn't need him in the playoffs, but you know Dusty Baker's an old fashioned manager. You know he probably was a lefty that did. You had a few guys. You had Matt Moore was out there for a while. Uh, he had an excellent year with the Rangers, you know, the year before. Um, and then one of the guys that got signed by the Tigers, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, he, he was with the Giants last year and he went back to the Tigers as a starting pitcher. I think he was with the Mariners for a bit. Um, 
But see, the thing is, is that, and this is what I want fans to do, and I'm thinking of guys like Matt Moore. Go to Baseball Reference and look up Andrew Miller. And look up Andrew Miller before he became a reliever, what numbers he was putting up as a starter. Matthew Boyd, that was his name, uh, with the Tigers. He's a guy that I figured could turn into an Andrew Miller. Because if you look at Andrew Miller when he became a reliever for about the five or six years that he was in his prime, he was putting up absolutely stupid numbers. And to me, yeah. if you could if you could sign a guy who, you know, would be fairly affordable, I mean Chafin didn't sign for that much, it's like maybe four or five million. I mean, that's not gonna throw you over the luxury tax or anything like that. And the thing is is that because you never know, I I guarantee you, somebody on this bullpen was gonna implode. It happens every year. Every year there are guys that have unbelievable good seasons, and then there are guys that you think are gonna be good. They're just not. I mean, you look yeah. at baseball history, it's the same thing. And so to me, having as many bullets as you possibly could throw out there just protects you from when, you know, maybe it's Ryan Stanek, you know, maybe it's uh, Martinez has been off to a horrible start so far. You, you never know who it's going to be, but somebody is just not going to answer the bell. And so far, it also looks like Ryan Presley, which, you know, that's a worrisome thing, too. Yeah, it's. Yeah, you're right. The the, the on-the-margin bullpen moves, stuff like that. I don't know about Bettentendi. I mean, the guy's sitting 276 with an on-base percentage of 323. I think Corey Jokes is better than that. You know, I think we've got some internal um, solutions. But what's really killed the Astros, if you, if you look at it, they went big in 2018. They traded for Garrett Cole. They went big in 2019. They traded for Zach Frankie. Then they get popped in 2020, and they lose first-round draft picks. And so they've made moves every year when they were in contention, so they've had to trade away prospects. They have first-round picks taken away from them, so they're not getting the same level of prospects. And so they're just behind. And then the ones that they have, you have a, a 2020 year that's just weird. So a lot of guys didn't get that same playing time. So now you look at Jokes, that guy's 27. Like, that's really old for a big league rookie, simply because a combination of where was he going to play? The Astros outfield has been stacked for five years. He had nowhere to go. And, you know, he, he took a little time to, to get there. He wasn't a highly sought-after prospect. And so the Astros have some guys. It's just they're not your typical blue-chip prospects. They've got your more, you know, grinders. They've got guys who have grinded their butts off from single-A all the way up to triple-A, and, and they're looking for their opportunities. So um, it's going to take some time, I think, for them to kind of refill the, the cupboard a bit. But there's enough talent on that big league roster, like, Yes, we've had some bad injuries this year. I, I do think, God forbid, if we miss the playoffs this year, it's not the end of the dynasty, right? Like, you've still got a whole young group of talent. You've got great pitchers. You've still got Altuve. You've still got Pena. You've still got Jordan. You've still got Kyle Tucker for another year. You know, there's still stuff there. You just – you got to find a way to refill the, the cover a little bit in the minor leagues with some, with some high blue-chip prospects. I think it's going to get there. The Astros – do such a good job in the international market and with their work in, in the Latin American countries um, that they're going to find some, they're going to continue to find talent there that is not your traditional drafted in your system. So people discount that as well too, when they look at the Astro system. Um, I think, you know, kind of reaching the end here. And I think uh, if there's one sports related question that Tim and I have disagreed on, uh, it is what should the Texans do with the number two pick, and so uh, and and I, I, I you're a perfect 
person to bring in here because number one, I mean, you're, uh, you're, you're in, you're covering the team, but you're also, you know, subbing in, and, you know, being with all the hosts, you know, at 610. So where are you going with that? And where do you see like the, you know, I guess the collective mind of 610, you know, where do you think they, they're going with that number two overall selection? Yeah, well, you got to remember, everybody is 6'10". Every single one of us thinks a little bit differently. And so uh, I think we all have a slightly different opinion. But where we would all come together, I think, I feel like every single one of us wants them to draft a quarterback. And maybe the motivations are a little bit different. You know, some some of us might just want it because it'd be good for the show. It'd be, you know, it'd be good for the team and that would be good for the show. Like I, I think that there is an element of like self-importance that goes along with this that I that I would be dishonest if I did not acknowledge. Okay, I think that's a part of it. But if you're just looking at it from a football standpoint, I mean, it looks like you know where I stand on it. There's not, there's not going to be a greater opportunity or like other than getting the number one overall pick in a draft where there is a quarterback that's worth taking number one overall this is like the second best opportunity that you could get to get a franchise quarterback. So much to the point to where I don't think, like I I feel like if they were to draft CJ Stroud, for example, which is what I think they should do to answer your question very simply. But if I think they were to do that and CJ Stroud, let's say doesn't work. I don't think that we're going to do like however many years it takes for us to determine that it didn't work three years, four years, whatever it is. I don't think we're going to do the revisionist history and be like, yeah, you see, the Texans shouldn't have drafted a quarterback. They should have drafted Will Anderson because we all knew C.J. Stroud wasn't going to be any good. Like there, there are mixed reviews on C.J. Stroud, but he is a accomplished enough. He is an accomplished enough and skilled enough player coming out of college to where he could reasonably be picked at number two. You can have a reasonable expectation of that being your franchise quarterback of the future. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, I mean, all of this is a projection. That's that's what the draft is. It's a it's a risk reward analysis. It is a it is a risk, you know, so you're you're risking anybody that you pick not working. Um, but what what shocked me a little bit in the discourse more recently is how it feels like we're talking about all of the quarterbacks not named Bryce Young. We're talking about them like their last year's quarterback class where, you know, at the very least, C.J. Stroud is far more accomplished than anybody from last year's quarterback class. And then everybody else is a project, but a far more intriguing project than what you saw last year. Like they're all, I think, interesting, no perfect quarterback prospect that's in this draft, but all interesting and to me worth gambling on, um, especially if you need if you have a need at that position. Now, do I would I be fine with Will Anderson on a team that I'm covering or Tyree Wilson on a team that I'm covering? Yeah, I could get behind that. But but missing out, that would be the biggest thing to me would be a missed opportunity to do something special. All right. So kind of to close us off. Can you let our listeners know where could they, you know, in addition to 610, you know, where could they find you? Where could, where could they uh, catch up more with Brandon Scott? Yeah, so I'm co-hosting the H-Town Hoops podcast with Adam Spillane. That is an Odyssey production, our parent company at 610. 
um, reached out to us last year to, to start that up. And so it was a real cool thing. So check out the H-Town Hoops podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. And then I also do the B-Block podcast, a semi-weekly. Um, yeah, with everything I got going on, it's really, really difficult to be as dedicated to it as I like to. But it's my own space where, you know, when I need a, a space to go and to talk, that's where I do it. So the B-Block podcast also, wherever you get your podcast. All right, so Tim, uh, sorry, kind of jumped to the gun here, but where can the folks find you? You can always find me at Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. Uh, and if you haven't started following the show on Facebook, please be sure to do so. Follow, like and follow us at the Snap Hook on Facebook. Uh, you can always catch me on the Twitter machine at Sbarzilla. I'm also cover the Texans for Battle Red Blog. I uh, have a couple of interesting pieces. I'm, I'm going to be arguing the same thing Brandon argued right there uh, in my next piece that should be coming out this week. And also write some uh, political commentary for Juanita Jean's Beauty Salon. Uh, thank you so much, Snaphook listeners. And, and thank you so much to Brandon Scott, our guest, for being with us. It's been wonderful chopping it up with you about the Rockets you know, and some other uh, local Houston sports. Yeah, man, a pleasure. Thank you guys again for having me, man. I love doing this. I love it when someone thinks enough of me to invite me on. So hopefully we get an opportunity to do it again. Yeah, we'd love to uh, to have you back on. Hopefully after the uh, the lottery rolls out, we have a better idea of uh, where the Rockets are picking. We can hopefully talk a little bit more about some of the prospects that we can really circle in on because I think you can only lick your chops if you get that number one pick. And even two, I'd love Scoot. Scoot is, is the answer to a lot of things, too. So um, once those those ping pong balls fall where they may, yes, uh, we'd love to have you back on. Yes, we'll do it. We'll do it soon. Awesome. Well, hey, it's, it's been a fantastic episode. Again, we're so thankful for not only Brandon for joining us, but all of our Snaphook listeners for making us a part of your week. Uh, we look forward to being back with you again next week. But until then, we hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you for tuning in to the Stamp Book and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and his outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook. Snap Hook.